We'll hear argument next in number 91420, Joanne Grohl v. James Emerson. Mr. Thunheim, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Redistricting is a power and responsibility that is reserved to the states in the first instance. This case presents the Court with an opportunity to illuminate that important principle and clarify the apparent confusion in the lower federal courts. I intend to direct my argument this morning to the abstention issue did the federal court err by refusing to abstain to an ongoing state judicial proceeding. And the case presents perhaps one of the most stark examples of what can go wrong when there are jurisdictional disputes in the redistricting process. We have a federal court that has twice enjoined an ongoing state proceeding and enjoined a final valid judgment of a state court and wrote redistricting plans that absolutely ignored state law. And I would like to focus on the proper role of the federal courts in the unique context of the decennial responsibility of redrawing the election districts within the boundaries of the states. You cannot have two sets of rules, one drawn by the state and one by the federal courts. The time pressures are extraordinary. There must be a rule that is absolutely clear on allocation of responsibilities because at stake are really the vital state interests that are involved in elections, in ensuring the integrity of election districts within states, and at stake are really important principles of federalism. Prior decisions of this court have established and reaffirmed a bright line abstention rule to be followed by federal courts in redistricting cases. The rule is firmly grounded in the Constitution and by strong policy reasons. Adherence to the rule would have eliminated the costly, wasteful, and duplicative proceedings that we had in this matter. Now any discussion of the abstention rule must start by reemphasizing what is unique about the redistricting process. It is an inherent state function. This court has emphasized that federal courts, emphasized over and over that federal courts must defer to state legislatures to accomplish the redistricting task. And even when federal courts do act, they must adhere and defer to state policies that have been developed. This deference principle, I believe, is at the heart of the abstention doctrine for redistricting cases. Now this rule is limited to a relatively narrow window for the redistricting process, the roughly 10 months or so that states have after receipt of the census data and when they have to have district plans in place to run the first election after that time. 
If there is a redistricting challenge in state courts, if there is such a challenge, the federal court should abstain in favor of the state court action, just as it must defer well, to the legislature. I guess uh, at least Scott versus Germano says that the federal district court should set a timetable for the state action. Yes. Uh, do you uh, concede that it is the role of the federal court to do that much? It is, yes, I do, Your Honor. The federal court should, under the rule, retain jurisdiction to ensure that all constitutional and statutory provisions are adhered to by now, the state in the process. Now, in this uh, case, I take it the federal district court did not set a timetable for the state to make congressional redistricting? The federal court, in this case, Your Honor, uh, set a uh, timetable for the legislature to act. The federal court, throughout the process, on ignored congressional redistricting? for the legislature to act on congressional and legislative redistricting. And for the state court? The federal court did not set a deadline for the state court because it essentially ignored the state court throughout the process. It, it, it found properly that it and, must be And we have, we have an election uh, coming up tomorrow. Uh, what congressional plan will, will be in effect tomorrow? The, the election tomorrow is, is being operated pursuant to the stay of this court. Legislative districts uh, will be, by virtue of the state court plan, which but congressional, but congressional by the federal district the federal. court plan. And do you say that uh, this court, if we think the district court erred with regard to the congressional plan, should set aside that election? And, and then what would you do? I mean, what is it you're asking? We, we are not asking this court to take any action with respect to the election tomorrow. The, the principle that we are urging on the court is that the federal court must abstain in favor of a state court, and in this case, we had a state court that had an ongoing proceeding with respect to congressional redistricting. In fact, in, in, at the later stage of the process, after it had been enjoined several times, well, it finally issued a plan. Suppose we agree with you and say the district court erred. What relief is it that you're asking? The, the relief that we're asking with respect to congressional districts mm -hmm. uh, is that the federal court decision be reversed and the matter uh, be left for the state court to complete the process of congressional district that it con congressional redistricting that it worked on uh, throughout the year. So in other words, for the 1994 elections, they would be run pursuant to a plan drawn by the state court or the state legislature if it chooses to pass a plan. But it would not impact the 1992 elections. Uh, well, the, that would happen if the state legislature acted uh, uh, anyway. Yes, it would, uh, Justice White. Uh, but the state court panel was proceeding uh, in view of a, state, a valid... Yeah, but the state court... Uh, isn't about to uh, insist on uh, having its own plan uh, govern the 1994 elections if the legislature has uh, come up with a plan of its own that meets constitutional requirements. Absolutely. The, the important principle is that all courts must defer to the legislature. The legislature in this instance was unable to 
pass a congressional plan that was signed by the governor. And so the state court proceeded to draw a congressional redistricting plan, and it, it would be that plan that we would urge the court to, uh, to allow to go into effect to recognize the, 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 the power and the responsibility of the state judiciary to address these issues under the, the abstention rule. Mr. Toon, I'm in response to a question from Justice O'Connor. You said that the federal district court should set a timetable for the legislature. Does that mean anything more than a deadline? I mean, you're not suggesting that the federal court should tell the legislature that one house should pass a bill on such and such a day and another on another day, are you? No, I'm not, Your Honor. What I'm suggesting is what uh, the this court in Germano suggested that the federal court retain jurisdiction and fix a reasonable time by which the state must complete the process in order to avoid federal intervention. And if it isn't done by that time, then the federal court says, all right, uh, we can't wait any longer, we're going to go ahead. Is that right? That's correct. And your position is that that deadline applies not just to the state legislature, but also to the state courts? But you set a date, and if the state hasn't taken action by then, either through its legislature or through its courts, then the federal courts get in. That's correct. And I, I believe that's a reasonable administration of justice rule because administration of justice is an important concern in redistricting matters, especially with the very quick timeline that But uh, in his, this case, the state court uh, was working, wasn't it? The state court was proceeding. Uh, it, in fact, entered a final valid judgment on legislative redistricting, yeah. It was deferring to the legislature to give the legislature an opportunity to pass a congressional plan in January of, of 1992. And was, that the, was that beyond the deadline the federal court had? No, the federal court set a deadline of January 20th for the legislature, but the federal court did not set a deadline for the state to complete the process. Their deadline applied only to the legislature. Not for the congressional district. But for congressional, well, for legislative redistricting and congressional redistricting, both of which are the power of the legislature to draw lines if they can accomplish oh, that. Did the, did, the, did the federal court set a deadline for the legislature to act with respect to congressional districting? Yes. January 20th, the same and, date uh, as for and, and was the state court willing to wait longer than that? The state court was proceeding through, through the process. Yes or, yes or no? Uh, the, the state court did adhere to that date. Yes, it did. Uh, the, so the answer to your question is yes. The state court was prepared to review any congressional plan that the legislature would have passed. It had already signed January 20. Well, it, it, it was waiting until the legislature had an opportunity in January. It was represented to both courts that the legislature was going to meet in January and attempt to pass a congressional plan an attempt to pass a corrections bill for the legislative reading. Before January 20th? Before January 20th. That's correct. I take it you would agree that the time set, let's say, for uh, state court action uh, should be a time which would leave the federal courts with time themselves to come up with a plan if the state courts don't. You, you agree to that, I take it? Uh, yes, I would, Justice Souter, although I must reemphasize the, the, the unique time pressures that are involved in redistricting. And in many cases, it may not be possible for two court systems to both work on the redistricting process within this narrow 10-month right. window. Well, that's, that's what I want to get at. If, if that is the case, so that any date that would give the federal courts time to begin would not be a date which would give the state courts time to finish. 
in a case like that, uh, doesn't it make sense to, to say that abstention really doesn't have much of an application? Because uh, if, if indeed that's the case, then, then by abstaining, the only thing the federal court is doing is just squeezing its own time frame in, and we know perfectly well that it's going to get into the business of, of considering its own plan before the state courts could have acted. So in a case like that, why have any abstention? Well, because of the, the unique nature of redistricting, which is a, a function that this court has time and time again referred to as an important state function. Uh, the, the well, I, I know it, but I mean, how does that help you to get to an answer of my, to, to my question? Well, it, it helps because what, it, what is important for the federal court to do is to leave sufficient time for the state to complete its process. That includes the legislature, if it, if it so yeah, but chooses if, to act. If I may, if I may interrupt you on the hypothesis that you and I are working for, uh, on, the only effect of leaving that time is, is kind of a gesture of politeness, because we're assuming that the state courts aren't going to have time to finish by the date at which the federal courts are going to have to begin if there is no plan in place, uh, so that the only thing we're really doing is going through kind of a... Uh, sort of an after-UL font scheme when, when you know perfectly well that the federal courts are going to get into it before the states are going to finish anyway. Well, hopefully that would not be the case, that if, if the federal court would permit a state to go through the process, both legislative and through the state judiciary, uh, and give them an opportunity to complete this process in the 10-month period of time, that is really what is at stake in the abstention rule. Germano involved a situation in which uh, the, there was a federal court order that was issued before a state court order. And well, that, that is the difference between this case. Well, why should the federal court have retained jurisdiction here since the state court proceedings were initiated before any federal court proceedings were? Well, I, I would suggest that that, that was the, uh, the, the, the rule that was suggested by this court in Germano, that the yes, court but as you point out, in, in Germano, the federal court proceedings came first. Here, the state court proceedings came first. The only reason for the federal court to retain jurisdiction is just simply to provide some kind of assurance that all uh, concerns of voters will be resolved in the process. Well, if the state court is ongoing, there really is no need for a federal court. Yes, and the, the, the federal court cannot review the state court decree. Why not, if a state court proceeding starts first in reapportionment, why not simply leave it to the state courts and uh, appeal through their system and, and review here, just as you get through the federal court system? I would suggest to the court that that is a better rule. That wasn't the rule suggested in Germano, but that... But Germano is different factually. Germano is different factually, although I would, I would hesitate to think that a rule that provided for some sort of race to the courthouse would be the proper rule to apply. Our argument is that, this, that the power of the states to redistrict should be recognized both through the legislature and through the state court system, and, and make the federal uh, court a reviewer of last resort, and only if it's necessary. Are you, are you, are, I, I gather you suggesting that suppose the state court in this uh, in this case had uh, had uh, finished both jobs, both the legislative job and the and the congressional redistricting, and the, uh, the and there was also a suit pending in the federal court. Now, could the federal court then? be asked uh, to, to, uh, uh, to rule that the state court had uh, misapplied the Constitution and actually review the decision of the state court. I, would, I take it you th think it could. 
I, I suggest, Justice White, that it, it should not review the decision of the state court. If there are different parties raising different claims in federal court, then the proper rule under any abstention analysis is to look to whether the state court provided an adequate opportunity for all parties to have their issues resolved before the state court. If that's true, it's the end of the case, and there's no real well, need for federal court. This isn't a question race judicata exactly. It's, no. a, it's, a, it's, a, it's whether or not the, uh, the federal court has the authority to say, well, uh, the... the uh, State court should have provided a, a minority district here, and it didn't. Uh, and the state court had considered it and rejected the notion. Now, can the, can the federal court uh, displace the state court in that respect? Absolutely not. Uh, our, the, the rule should be, as stated in Germano, and I recognize the factual situation is a little bit different here, in fact, more favorable to the state interests, uh, the federal court should not have an opportunity to review on the merits what the state court has done. But what if that of appeal the, is the through state, the state court system. hadn't finished the job uh, when the federal court ruled on, on congressional redistricting? Pardon? I'm sorry. The state court had not, as a matter of fact, finished the job on, 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 on the congressional redistricting when the federal court acted. That is true, in part because of uh, the first of the federal injunctions which stopped the state court from proceeding forward. What if, uh, what, what, how would your rule apply to a case in which the plaintiff in the federal action raises issues that were not raised in the state litigation? For example, the state litigation might just challenge the redistricting under state constitutional provisions and never raise a question under the Voting Rights Act or the Constitution. Well, certainly if there are no issues raised in the state court action with respect to the Voting Rights Act, which is not the case here, but were that to be the case, uh, and there is still sufficient time for a federal court to review those issues before the election, the federal court should go ahead and review those because that's an entirely or separate action. Or if they're action. challenging a different part of the state, in other say they didn't like the district in Minneapolis, but in the federal action they want to challenge something else. Should the federal court abstain, or should it go ahead? Well, I would suggest in the, that in that instance, the, the state court should provide, as this court did, an, an opportunity for anyone to come forward with their concerns, their one-person, one-vote concerns in any part of the state, and to resolve those Must in the, the state court. Must the plaintiff challenge in the state court if the plaintiff prefers a federal forum? Well, certainly we wouldn't ar argue a rule that, that forces uh, a plaintiff to go to state court, although from the administration of justice standpoint, that may be the best rule under the narrow window of the redistricting process. Uh, but if a, a plaintiff chooses to stay in federal court, it may be that their concerns don't get resolved until after the first election has run. That's a possible outcome because of the, t the, the quick time uh, involved in the process. Of course, a lot of the time is not always attributable to the federal proceeding, let me put it that way. Absolutely. There's a lot that needs to be done in any redistricting process, and 10 months is really an insufficient time for it. Mr. Tunheim, could you tell me, uh, you, you made the comment that, of course, the, uh, the state court didn't finish because it was enjoined. Was the state court not proceeding at all during December? It was not doing anything at all when the injunction was in effect? The, the state court issued a, a final order uh, on legislative redistricting after the federal court issued its injunction in December. The order was, of course, subject to the limits of the federal injunction. Uh, both courts at that point were waiting for the legislature to come back into 
uh, session in January to see whether there was any final legislative action. So both courts were waiting for that. Once the legislature failed in January, then the state court proceeded to issue a valid final judgment and to proceed ahead on congressional redistricting. It's at that point that the federal court once again stopped the state court by enjoining both its uh, actions on congressional and legislative redistricting. That, that was when? In February. February. Right. I would like to uh, reserve the remaining time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Thunheim. General Starr, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the interest of the United States in this case focuses on a different aspect of the proceedings below, namely the interpretation of the Voting Rights Act by the District Court, and specifically Section 2, as amended in 1982. Do you take no position at all on the abstention argument that we've just heard? We do not. Uh, abstention is obviously a fact-intensive inquiry. The principles uh, of this Court uh, have obviously indicated the importance uh, of state procedures and that this is a state function, but the fact-intensive nature of, of this is such that we take no position. Our focus is on the merits portion of what the District Court did, its interpretation of Section 2. And our submission uh, about Section 2 is this, that the language of Section 2, its purpose, and the underlying logic of voter dilution claims all combine to suggest that the preconditions identified by this Court in the Jingles case should apply to single-member district challenges as well as to the multi-member district challenge at issue. That is to say that minority plaintiffs or any challenger should show that there is a sufficiently large geographically compact group of minority voters so as to constitute a majority within a particular district, and then that the voting behavior has been characterized by racial polarization on the part of both minorities and then a white voting block in response. Above all, unless there is racial block voting, and as the district court mentioned, the three-judge majority mentioned, there is no evidence at all of racial polarization here, then there is no predicate for overturning state-drawn districts on a dilution claim. If we look to what the Voting Rights Act was intended to do, and we go back to 1982, the purpose of that restoration in 1982 was to codify this Court's decision in White against Register and a wide variety of lower court cases, especially out of the Fifth Circuit, some 23 cases that preceded the city of Mobile versus Bolden. In all of those cases, racial block voting was present. And when we focus on the logic of a dilution claim, unless there is political cohesiveness, then there is nothing about the state's electoral structure that has interfered with that. Not only in those cases was there block voting on the part of minority interests, 
but there was also racial block voting by the white majority that had the effect of canceling out or of submerging the minority vote. In addition, the concept of geographic compactness is closely related to the concept of what an electoral district is. That, as this court said in Jingles, unless there is geographic compactness and a large enough group to constitute a majority in the district, then a defeat at the polls is a result of the lack of numbers and not because of the kind of concerns that Congress was getting at in amending Section 2. Section 2 is getting at the deprivation of equal opportunity on account of race or color. It is not getting at coalition politics, interest group politics. It is getting at clearing the channels of politics of the obstacles that prevent what the statute calls an equal opportunity to participate while guarding against the danger, which was part of the Great Compromise of 1982, of analyzing Section 2 in such a way that yields up essentially powerful tendencies in favor of proportional representation. We believe at bottom that was the vision that was guiding the district court in this particular case. General Starr, I, I, I know the government doesn't take a position on the uh, threshold issues in here, but it does, does the Section 2 analysis in a federal proceeding depend at all on what may have happened with regard to Section 2 issues in a state proceeding? It is conceivable, it seems to me, just in terms of the orderly administration of justice, that the district court might well be advised to look to the record of the proceedings in the state court case, assuming that it had, in fact, had a trial, or at least there were evidentiary submissions and so well, forth. Beyond looking at the record, supposing a state court disagreed with your analysis and found a Section 2 violation that you would say was plainly wrong, would, there be, would that judgment be entitled to full faith and credit in a parallel federal proceeding? Do you well, think? I, again, we have taken no position uh, at, at all on that. It's very important because we have ongoing litigation in two systems frequently, and, and it, I think it, the United States strange to me you don't have a position on that issue. Primarily because of the uh, inherently fact-intensive nature of these proceedings that I, I think the value, when we look at Scott against Germano and what this court was trying to do, I think the court was essentially saying to federal courts, please be respectful of state court proceedings. And as the Chief Justice indicated, once those state court proceedings are underway, there is, and in fact, what happened in Minnesota, as the court knows, is that a special three-judge court was impaneled, representing different parts of the state, with then direct appeal to the Minnesota Supreme Court. From off that appears, although we have no specific position here, it appears that the state court proceedings were, were going forward correctly. Now, if there is concerns on the part of the United States with respect to what uh, a state court might in fact do. We obviously are capable of intervening and participating in uh, that litigation. And obviously, if there is an ultimately an incorrect interpretation of Section 2 by the state court system, 
that obviously suggests that an appeal would uh, or certiorari might be appropriate in this court. The present dynamic is one that is quite frustrating because you have, under the statute, these three-judge district courts across the country with direct appeal to this court. And at the same time, you have this phenomenon of the parallel state proceedings. It does seem to us that there is wisdom in the pro-federalism vision of Scott against uh, Germano, but at the same time, we have not taken a specific position in terms of the judgment and whether it would be entitled to full faith and credit uh, protection. Back to Section 2, if I may, just for a moment. It does seem to us that when one analyzes the three-judge court's opinion, what it essentially said was there is a lack of proportional representation, and the bottom line of what the court did there was to create a new district, that new Senate District 59, which no one in the redistricting process, that deliberative process, hearing from various interested groups and so forth, including minority groups, no one had been recommending. The court, the court said there was no statistical evidence of uh, political cohesiveness uh, in the minority. Was there any other evidence at all, either in the state proceeding that it could take notice of or in the proceedings before it, from which it might come to the conclusion that there was a po politically cohesive force uh, in the minority voting uh, to the contrary, I cannot confess intimate familiarity with the state court record, but what I do know is that the state court itself in these proceedings, the special three-judge court, heard evidence, considered this very point, and in fact, as you'll see in the appellant's uh, brief, there is evidence quite to the contrary in Minnesota that individuals, minority individuals, have been elected to various and sundry positions including in the Twin Cities areas, from overwhelmingly majority or white districts. Uh, how, how, how did the district court ha handle that? Uh, as I read the, the footnote, uh, footnote 30, it, it seems simply to make a presumption that, this is, that there's usually going to be political cohesiveness. Exactly right. I think what uh, Judge Lay and his colleague did on the district bench was simply cite a law review article. That is exactly what this court in Jingle said cannot be done, and it's also what the Senate report at page 33 and 34 said cannot be done. We don't presume racial block voting in this country. General Starr, was there a Voting Rights Act challenge to the congressional redistricting brought in state court here? I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. The answer is I'm informed no in and state court. was there any Section 2 Voting Rights Act challenge to the congressional plan brought in the federal district court? No. And so what is the error there? if there was one. I'm not sure that there was in the congressional area, and I don't think that there has been an appeal with respect no to that. On that. We take no position with respect thank to that. I, I thank the court. Thank you, General Starr. Mr. Willis, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, I think the ultimate issue in this case is whether the federal court properly issued both legislative and congressional redistricting uh, plans for Minnesota in February of 92. And the appellees believe that this court may determine that issue on the basis of the application of principles of federal court jurisdiction and doctrines of federal court abstention without having to determine whether the federal court's finding of a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act was clearly erroneous, uh, if this court so chooses. Uh, because in issuing its plans, the, uh, the federal court uh, 
indicated that it was affording the same relief that it would have afforded had it not found a Section 2 Voting Rights Act violation. And appellees further believe that such a determination of this matter may be made by this Court without disturbing any precedents of the Court. First of all, the, this Court has recognized on numerous occasions uh, in cases such as Colorado River that a federal court has a virtually unflagging duty to adjudicate matters before it. The federal court in this case had jurisdiction and it was obligated to adjudicate the constitutional and statutory claims of the plaintiffs before it. Well, how do you explain Scott versus Germano, if, if you're correct, Mr. Willis? I don't view, uh, although I will have to admit, uh, Chief Justice, that the, uh, we bought into the language used by the appellants describing Scott v. Germano as an abstention case. It properly read is not an abstention case. It is a deferral case. But quite clearly, this court told the federal court in Illinois in that case that it should retain jurisdiction. Uh, abstention, as I proper, as I read that but term, that doesn't means tell you what should happen if uh, if a state court, uh, after the federal court holds its hand, if the state court uh, decides the issue. Uh, uh, what do you think Jingles tells you, or do you think uh, Scott against Germano tells you that this federal court can then sit in judgment of of how the state court decided the issue? I'm not sure. I think that Scott v. Germano, you know, is a uh, an anomaly, and it it is, as this court knows, a case that arose as part of the spate of decisions uh, across the country that followed Baker v. Carr and Reynolds v. Sims, when virtually every redistricting plan in the country was rendered unconstitutional. So the main hold, the main holding was whatever, whether you call it abstention or uh, or why it was. The federal court should not have uh, proceeded to adjudicate the case while the state uh, while the state agencies were working. I think the case has to be read that way, but it also has to be recognized that that case was brought two years in advance of an election, mm-hmm. and I don't think that it provides uh, very efficient guidance for federal courts uh, uh, today uh, operating under the kinds of time constraints that. Uh, Mr. Thunheim has described. Well, so, supposing the Minnesota State Court had completed its redistricting plan, uh, and the plaintiffs in the federal action said, well, this is all wrong. They said there's no voting rights violation. We want you to say there is one. They said it was consistent with the U.S. Constitution. We want you to say it isn't consistent. Can the federal court review the state plan on the merits? I don't think the federal court reviews the state court uh, plan on the merits, but I think the federal court has an obligation to adjudicate the claims that are before it, no matter what the state court has done. Even though it reaches a result in conflict with the state even if it reaches on the a same res- issues? Even if it reaches a result in conflict with the state on the, sta- on the same issues. That's a rather strange result. It, it strikes me, Your Honor, that, the, that this court in, uh, uh, in its decision in New Orleans Public Service three years ago, uh, uh, rather strongly stated that uh, abstention principles, such uh, the younger abstention principle that has been argued uh, uh, for application here in this case, uh, you know, does not uh, uh, require abstention in deference to a state judicial proceeding reviewing legislative or executive action. Uh, the court went on to say, and I quote, it is true, of course, that the federal court's disposition of such a case may well affect or for practical purposes 
preempt a future or even a pending state court action, but there is no doctrine that the availability or even the pendency of state judicial proceedings excludes the federal court. I mean, I, the Chief Justice's question to you didn't involve a future or pending state action. It involved a completed state action. And you said that the, that the federal court could simply review and overturn the result of the state court action. I said that, the, uh, in my judgment, the federal court could reach an, an inconsistent conclusion. Do you know of any other area where this is so, where, where a federal issue is presented to a state court, the state court decides it and rules upon it, and a federal court has authority to review that same issue and, and come to a different conclusion? Justice Scalia, we are, uh, in this particular instance, we are dealing with a situation in which the, uh, you know, the federal court and the state court, having simultaneous jurisdiction, you know, had claims before it. The federal court had no... The, the there there are lots of areas no where, where claims can be brought in either federal or state courts. State courts have jurisdiction over other federal causes of action. Do you know of any other area where, when the federal cause of action has been resolved in the state court, the federal court has authority to reconsider the matter and set aside the state court judgment? Your you Honor, might, it's, it's, it, it, you might, you might, you might consider whether the parties are the same. Well, thank you, Your Honor. But if we were talking about race judicata and uh, and preclusive effect, I mean that in this, if you're if you're talking about the facts of this case as opposed to an abstract legal principle, in this case there were different parties. The parties in the federal court were not the all parties to the state action. All of the appellants here were parties to both actions. In fact, three. Uh, Three of the appellants voluntarily intervened in the federal action, uh, having been parties to the state action. So that uh, the state court action, state court determination here did not have, in in our judgment, preclusive effect on the parties to the federal action. I misunderstood your question and thought you were speaking in the ab- in a more ab- abstract uh, well, Mr. manner. Mr. Willis, now. Uh, here, is it true that the state court suit was filed first? That is true, Your Honor. And the state court acted in a timely fashion? Y- Your Honor, we would not concede that. First of all, uh, and, and let me uh, correct a, a misapprehension that may exist. The question was asked earlier, if the federal court had established a uh, a deadline by which not only the legislature, mm-hmm. but by which state action had to be taken. The federal court did so in, uh, in an order on October 4, 1991, in which it established uh, January 25, 1992, as the date by which the state of Minnesota shall enact both legislative and congressional redistricting plans. Well, enact plans. That doesn't refer to state court action, does it? It depends on how one reads the, the state of Minnesota. It well, if one thinks the, that enactment of a plan refers to a legislative act, then it didn't cover it. It could be read that way, Your Honor. And if we read it that way, then the state court acted in a timely fashion, perhaps. At least that's arguable. That is arguable. And uh, do, you, do the respondents claim that the state plan that was enacted for legislative districts is unconstitutional? No, Your Honor. We claim that it was not, however, entitled, uh, entitled to deference by the federal court because it was not a, uh, 
It was not a legitimate legislative enactment entitled to deference. It was not reflective of state policy because it was in all — it was virtually identical to a plan that, that uh, was specifically rejected as state policy one month later. We have the unusual circumstance here of having a state judicial plan ordered one month before the legislature reconvened to attempt to, you know, to pass a legislative redistricting plan. So we have a judicial proceeding before the, legisl the legislative action. The legislature attempted to ad adopt in January of 1992 a plan that but for two Senate districts was identical to the plan the state court had ordered in December, and that was specifically rejected as state policy in Minnesota by virtue of the governor's veto and this court. So what we have left is the state court adopted plan. Is that right? The state the court adopted plan yes. st still exists. Yes. That's correct. All right. And that could be seen as the reflection of state policy in this case. We argue that it is not a reflection of state policy in that it was virtually identical with a plan that was specifically rejected as state policy. It wasn't rejected. It was simply not, just it was simply not enacted at all. Well, uh, I mean, you, one, one can view the legislature, the legislature did not uh, adopt a different plan. So all that happened when the legislative process was all done was that the plan announced by the state court remained in effect. At the end of the day, that was the state plan. Except this court has announced that in Minnesota specifically, in dealing with redistricting specifically, in the Smiley v. Holm case, that state policy in Minnesota is reflected by valid legislative enactments and that in Minnesota, the governor, as the chief executive officer, is a necessary uh, element or a valid legislative enactment to occur. But, but th that doesn't completely answer the question we're dealing with here. So far as the federal courts are concerned, perhaps a law passed by the legislature signed by the government would have, governor would have been the best evidence of state policy. But surely the uh, plan adopted by a state court is better evidence of state policy than a plan adopted by the federal court. I would, uh, I, I would disagree, uh, Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist. Uh, I don't think that, uh, uh, that state policy, uh, at least in Minnesota, is reflected by is found in judicial enactments. State policy in Minnesota is found in the valid enactments of the state legislature. You say the state court then was simply proceeding under the same restraints or laws that the federal court would have to proceed. It, it was not entitled to make any more policy choices than a federal court would be? I think that is correct. I think that is correct. And uh, first of all, I don't see that there is any greater reason for a federal court to abstain in a matter involving voting rights than in a case involving any other basic civil rights. And no one, I think, would suggest seriously that because there was a, a state uh, forum available that a, an individual you know, challenging uh, you know, discriminatory educational practices or prison conditions or whatever could not have access to a federal forum, even though the state has a strong state interest you know, in matters of that kind. So Germano should be overruled? I don't think it's necessary to do that. I don't think it's necessary to do that because Germano is, does not tell federal courts to abstain.
But I think Germano well, it tells them to abstain for a while. It tells them to stay their hand, but it doesn't tell them to, uh, you know, to dismiss the case because there is a pending state court. Uh, but on action. your on your argument, I'm not sure why um, deferral should uh, should be any more palatable than abstention. Certainly, in the time frame involved in this case, deferral was, would not be more palatable than abstention. But uh, the court should recognize what the federal court did here. Not only in attempting to follow the dictates of Germano, it established first uh, January 20 and later January 25 as the date by which state action had to occur. No one objected to that. All of the parties agreed that a plan should be in effect ideally by early February at latest by the 1st of March. Uh, the federal court recognized also the inherent uh, potential for delay in the state appellate proceedings, you know, indicated that because it, you know, it was going to give the legislature an opportunity to act, if the legislature did not make good on its representation that it would adopt a valid plan of both legislative and congressional redistricting that would become law in January, Federal court knew it wasn't going to have time to start at that point and get plans done. Well, why, why was delay in the state proceedings any more objectionable than delay in the federal proceedings? I mean, first you have the district court and then you have an, an appeal here. So it's not as if the district court spoke with any final authority. Well, except you, you, the court also has to recognize that you know, Congress has, by the enactment of Section 2284, rec given federal courts specifically jurisdiction over uh, statewide legislative apportionment as well as congressional apportionment because they are both specifically mentioned in that section. It also provides for a direct appeal to this court from the determination of the three-judge panel. The three-judge panel created in Minnesota was not created under any statute that relates to redistricting. It was an ad hoc panel created by the constitutional authority of the Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court to move judges from one district to another. There, since it was not created pursuant to a special statute, there is no special statute regarding appeal, and on its face, the determination of that three-judge panel would be subject to Minnesota's two-tiered uh, appeal process and then possibly to this court after determination by the Minnesota Supreme Court. Mr. Willis, uh, who were the judges on the state side? On the, pardon me, Your Honor? Who were the state judges, the three? Uh, Judge Harriet Lansing of the Minnesota Court of Appeals, uh, State uh, District Court Judge William Walker from uh, northwestern Minnesota, and uh, State District Court Judge Kenneth Moss from uh, the Stillwater area. Somewhere. Stillwater, or White Bear Lake, I'm afraid. Why should we consider the uh, potential appellate process at all? You've got a valid judgment once the, once the state court acts, just as you've got a valid judgment once a three-judge federal court acts. Why isn't that enough? Why isn't that the only thing that should be considered? Because of the exigencies of the political processes in the state, as, uh, you know, as the Attorney General has acknowledged, it is essential that be between the time that the legislative data are available early in the year following the census year, you know, that the, that the redistricting process, both for legislative uh, districts and for congressional districts, be completed in such a, a fashion 
that the processes necessary to conduct the uh, the election in the even-numbered year are in place? Well, you can conduct an election uh, based on a, uh, uh, in this case, your three-judge state court decree. There's no difficulty in conducting an election. You just wouldn't have time to appeal it through the two tiers. In other words, the, the, state, is, the state is providing a, a, um, a perfectly enforceable remedy. Uh, and, and, and you're, of course, quite right that there isn't time to appeal the correctness of that remedy, perhaps in cases in this case. But I, I don't see why that is, a, 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 as it were, a failing of the state court system, which somehow should be considered in determining uh, what the federal courts should or should not do. I think it is a consideration, Your Honor, and I think that taken together with Section 2284, an expression of congressional intent that federal courts have jurisdiction over such cases and providing for immediate and direct appeal to the United States Supreme Court from the uh, determinations of three-judge panels, that Congress has uh, evidenced an intention that there be quick determination of redistricting issues. But, you know, this district court decree was entered when, last February? The, the, the uh, federal district court yes. decree, uh, February 19. And we noted probable jurisdiction last spring. Here it is, November. We're hearing the case argued on the merits. Maybe there'll be an opinion out, uh, you know, this winter or this spring. Uh, and obviously, it wasn't in, uh, this, this review wasn't in time for the 1992 election. No, but if I, I would suggest, Your Honor, that if... Uh, if this court were hearing the case after a review by two tiers of the Minnesota appellate process and a possible certiorari from the determination of the Minnesota Supreme Court that we would probably be sitting here uh, at this time uh, you know, next year or certainly sometime very much later than this. Mr. Willis, can I uh, explore with you a little further the consequence of the state court decree if the state court proceeding had been allowed to go forward? Let's take it out of the voting rights context. Suppose you, you, you have a, a shareholder dispute in a, in a close corporation, and, and uh, there's some dispute as to how the stock should be divided, and one of the three shareholders sues in state courts. And the state court says, well, it ought to be 60-20-20. That's how the stock ought to be divided, and a judgment is entered to that effect. Meanwhile, another suit is begun in federal court, somehow some basis of federal jurisdiction. Wouldn't the suit in the federal court, which claims likewise an inequitable distribution, wouldn't that suit have to start on the assumption that the current distribution is 60-20-20, the decree entered by the state court? If you had an identity of parties involved. No, even if you didn't have an identity of parties. If, 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 the, if the court had the power to order, you know, statewide that there be, uh, or um, in the context of my example, that the corporate uh, shares be divided that way, they would be divided that way. Now, you, you could argue that that new arrangement is violative of federal law, but wouldn't that new arrangement be the status quo? And why isn't that the same here? If, if, if that is true in that situation, why isn't it here? You can review the state court determination so long as there are new parties. But the status quo, what you must attack, is the current court decree, not the prior legislative uh, redistricting that, 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 this, that this legislature had established. Why wouldn't that be the, the situation? 
Here, Your Honor, in dealing with redistricting, this Court has said that, uh, you know, that courts must defer to state policy, you know, in making uh, the det- their determinations regarding redistricting. Uh, the, the hypothetical that you present, I, I don't perceive as having you know, state policy uh, implications. Here the federal court. Okay, it, it, it goes back to that. I understand. I mean, the, here the federal court had determined that uh, mm-hmm. you know, by the time it acted in February, I mean, it had a number of facts available to it. It it, it knew that what the state court uh, had adopted in December was a plan that, uh, under Minnesota law, as interpreted by this court, had been specifically rejected as state policy in January. It also had no congressional plan of any kind before it. The uh, legislature's uh, attempt to pass a legislative plan similarly was rejected as state policy by the veto of the governor in January, and the state court had not generated a uh, uh, congressional plan. And I would uh, take issue with, by the way, the representation that in any way stays of the uh, of the federal court contributed to that uh, uh, to that circumstance, as uh, Mr. Thunheim acknowledged, uh, in its December 9 order, the state court said that we are not going to act on congressional plans now. We're going to give the legislature a chance to act in January, while at the same time not giving them a chance to to act again in January on legislative plans. The legislature passed a congressional redistricting plan a stay, that, that order was issued subject to an existing stay of the federal panel. The legislature passed its uh, congressional plan on the 9th of January. The governor vetoed it on the 10th of January. This court vacated the stay on the 10th of January. So that uh, all that the, uh, the state court had said it would do is wait till the legislature attempted to act by the 10th of January. It was known what was going to happen, and by the 10th of January, the stay of the federal court had been vacated by the And you don't defend the district court's decision to enter the stay here, do you? (laughs) I think that the district court, absent the district court stay, the legislature likely would not have attempted to act uh, on uh, legislative redistricting. I think the district court legitimately saw the uh, the issuance of a legislative redistricting plan a month before the legislature was scheduled to reconvene to consider redistricting as having a chilling effect on the legislative process in Minnesota. This court obviously did not uh, agree that the stay was appropriate and it was vacated without comment. So whose view do you choose, this court's or the district? I, I choose your view, Your Honor. <laughs> What, what did, did the did the state court during in December when when the, when the December stay was in effect? Did did they do any work at all on on you know how they would uh, themselves redistrict if the state uh, legislature didn't come up with anything? The state court? Yes. I I, ha- I I don't know the answer to that question, Your Honor. I, I I think that's somewhat relevant to whether the state court was dilatory later when the stay was finally uh, was finally lifted that is when the when the legislature had acted uh, the state comes in and says well we moved as fast as we could uh, once uh, once the december stay was in effect eliminated by the legislative plan having been adopted um, if i thought that they could have gone ahead and done something during december i might feel differently about it do you think that they were able to uh, 
to proceed uh, with contingency plans during December, even though they couldn't have uh, uh, violated the federal district court? Uh, I, I think the, the court itself could have proceeded with the development of contingency plans as the federal court had done. I, my recollection of the terms of the stay was simply that uh, uh, no action could be taken to implement such a plan and that the parties themselves were uh, enjoined from participating in further proceedings of the state uh, uh, panel, but I think the state panel itself could have, uh, and perhaps did. Uh, that was not something to which counsel were privy, as I you know, may, may have been working in contingency. The, the parties were enjoined from proceeding before the, before the state courts, and, and then you suggest that it's appropriate for the state court to continue absent the representation of the parties? That's very curious. Excuse me. No, I was speaking only uh, only to the uh, to the issue of whether the state court could itself have proceeded with the development of contingency plans subject to the stay. Uh, I mean, the, the federal court prepared contingency plans without strike. Uh, um, uh, the federal court prepared contingency plans which were not to be uh, made public until and unless they were needed. There was uh, input from counsel. Uh, from the outset of the state court action, the state court concerned itself only with legislative plans and congressional plans were not even mentioned until the order of December 9, in which the, uh, uh, the state court said we were going to wait uh, until the legislature has an opportunity to act M in January. Mr. Willis, you haven't said much about the Section 2 vote dilution claim. Um, do you think that such a claim can be established absent proof of minority block voting? Uh, Your Honor, uh, we, uh, we do not believe that the, uh, uh, the determination of the uh, federal district court was clearly erroneous, but as I didn't... Wait a minute. I, what I asked you was whether you believe that a vote dilution claim under Section 2 can be established absent proof of minority block voting. I think that's a, that that is a stretch, Your Honor. That it cannot be. Cannot be. But you think somehow there was such proof in this case? Is that your position? I think that the uh, the federal court satisfied itself from an examination of voting patterns that. Uh, uh, that there was racial block voting. And well, I it said there's no statistical evidence. Okay. Okay, but once again, Your Honor, uh, I think that it is possible for, the, uh, for this panel to deal with the issues in this case without making a, a determination of the, uh, the propriety or impropriety of the Section 2 Voting Rights Act violation, and I would encourage the Court to do so. I think that the court is going to have on its uh, calendar on uh, December 8 uh, a case that uh, uh, that will uh, allow the court to address those same issues. And I don't think I think that this case can be disposed of on the uh, on the, uh, the grounds of uh, uh, the application of principles of, of preclusion, and that uh, I mean that in this case the. Uh, the state court, or I mean, the federal court had jurisdiction and obligation to act. There is no principle of abstention. 
that uh, would require them not to act. In fact, the, uh, the court's pronouncements have, uh, have been to the contrary, and that the, uh, the court, in issuing its plans of legislative and congressional redistricting, properly exercised its broad remedial power. And the uh, to protect its jurisdiction? And, and to issue an injunction to protect its jurisdiction in connection with the issuance of its order. But it, um, I mean, it, it issued a plan that complied with all of the directions of this court regarding uh, court-ordered plans for de minimis uh, population deviations. It avoided the fracturing of minority voting populations. It created compact districts. It was drawn without uh, uh, consideration of the residents of incumbents and faced with several alternatives for the city of Minneapolis on how best minority voting interests be protected. Uh, I don't think that the federal court's decision to create a supermajority minority Senate district can be said to be clearly well, uh, Suppose Suppose clearly we erroneous. think that the district court improperly found a Section 2 Voting Rights Act violation. Now, had the district court not found that, or inasmuch as we might think it's improper, should the federal district court then have uh, at least adopted the state court plan. Well, I think Isn't that what's left? You, uh, there was no contention by respondents that the state court plan was unconstitutional. So why in the world wouldn't the federal district court resort to the state court plan if there's no Section 2 violation? Because the state of the federal court uh, determined that uh, the state court plan was not uh, was not a valid reflection of state policy in that virtually identical plan had been uh, specifically rejected during the 1992 uh, legislative session in January. Thank you, Mr. Willis. Uh, Mr. Thunheim, you have one minute remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. A couple of concerns to address. Uh, uh, Justice Scalia's concern about the delay involved in the uh, state court uh, consideration of congressional redistricting the state court had before it congressional redistricting from the beginning. On August 16th, it set the criteria by which it would review any congressional plan that would be uh, enacted by the legislature. It was stayed, its hand was stayed by the federal injunction from uh, early December until January 10th when that injunction was lifted here. At that point, the state court once again moved forward on congressional redistricting, asking the parties to come forward and uh, present uh, their views on, on what the state court should do on congressional redistricting. Any delay in that process is solely attributable to the uh, injunctions that were, were imposed on the state court and on the parties by the federal panel. There's no, uh, no reason to believe, and, and the state thank, court, in thank fact, you. thank Your you. Your time has expired, Mr. Turner. Thank you. The case is submitted.